As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so Matt, did you know that all the meat that we get from cows is from male cows? How do we know that? Well, because if we made anything out of female cows, then they would be mistakes. everybody and welcome to the graveyard thank you for joining us tonight my name is adam and my name's matt now pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is graveyard tales (laughs) all right everybody here we are again matt how you doing tonight brother man i'm good good i'm doing good hey i noticed something today Uh oh so i get You're up, noticing things it's cold yep. okay so uh i noticed so I'm that getting too. ready I'm, I'm getting ready for work now my typical attire this time of year is a long sleeve t-shirt like a carhartt t-shirt underneath my polo shirt that i wear to work and the only okay? time of year you don't wear flip-flops that's the only time <laughs> but i wear them at home yeah true you know? true and i walk out in the yard in them Ugh. But anyway, no thanks. My my normal my normal digs are a black polo shirt, and I have a dark gray long sleeve shirt that I wear underneath it. Right. So I got dressed, and you know it it was supposed to be all icy and everything. It wasn't. It was raining. It was cold. I'm like, ah, uh, you know, so I'm getting dressed, you know. And, and I had been up moving. I had left the house. And I noticed that I had put on a navy blue long sleeve shirt under my black shirt. (laughs) And I'm like, how the hell did I not notice this before now? Yeah. Like, I'm sitting here just like, yeah, this is normal. You know, black and navy blue go really well together. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, are you going colorblind? Is that the question? (laughs) I think I'm going... I'm I, I, I'm just reaching in the closet. Oh yeah, gra- this this long sleeves filled right. Put it out. Instead it out. of color blindness, you've got don't give a damnness. <laughs> now it just goes to show that I'm not fully awake when I leave the house. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you were talking about being cold. It it is incredibly cold down here, um, especially for Texas, but just incredibly cold. Um, and we had that big. Um, 
50 plus car pile up in fort worth because of the ice and everything good lord it was crazy i sent you that video that was nuts um but yesterday went and got haircut right so you come out of the barber and my freaking neck and head was so cold like i didn't think i had that much hair but i walked out and i'm like oh god you know i really i've been cold ever since so maybe i shouldn't have gotten my hair cut and they probably shampooed your hair with like that tea tree mint stuff oh, yeah. they love to put on dudes. <laughs> yeah. And it's like it makes your scalp tingle and then mm-hmm. you walk out in the cold, you're like, geez. Yeah. Well, they do a, a straight razor shave on my neck and then they put like a, it's like a minty, refreshing, supposed to be aftershave stuff on the back of your neck, you know? Yeah. Smells great, but good Lord, it turns me into an icicle. So... <laughs> Now that y'all have gotten the useless information uh, about me and Matt. <laughs> we just let the crap we talk about bleed over into the show now. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to it, guys. Um, we do want to say real quick, go check out the Podbelly Network. Go to podbelly.com and you can find other shows to listen to that you may not find regularly. And you can find different tricks and tips and stuff on how to record your own podcast. We also want to say... Uh, a big thank you to tonight's sponsors, Best Fiends and Every Plate, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later. But while we're on that topic, uh, Matt and I would just like to tell you guys that, you know, in a perfect world, then we could put this show out for nothing. It would be free, you know, free for you guys, free for us. But as we all know, it's not a perfect world. So there are costs that we accrue over the the year of doing this show especially if we want to make it better for you guys doing live shows all this stuff it all cost us money and in order to keep the show free and not have to charge you guys per episode which i wouldn't want to do if i was you guys so i, I completely understand we run ads exactly um you know we don't worry this is not a notification that we're turning into Joe Rogan and you're going to have to pay for new episodes of Graveyard Tales. That's not going to happen. Nope. You know, we're, we're staying on the free format. However, that does mean that we have to run advertiser advertisements to keep some money coming in. Along with our Patreon donors, we have to run some ads. So we just wanted to say, look, it, it really helps when our listeners go and check out our sponsors and if you can afford it, purchase something from them using our link or our discount code or whatever, because that brings them back to graveyard tales and allows us to keep, you know, generating that little bit of money that keeps the show going and us not have to charge anybody. And and Matt and I are, are big on not, running ads on things we don't actually believe in and like right we we promote products on this show we have we've been graced with sponsors that want to advertise here but we make sure that these are products that are quality and that we use Mm -hmm. so everything that we advertise on this show adam and i have have tried we have used and we acknowledge that they're good products we're we're not gonna sell we're not gonna you know offer to sell you some you know just some junk just for the sake of getting some ad money in exactly you know, so even if you don't buy anything or even if you can't look we get it 
but just visiting the links helps because right. it's telling our sponsors that um, they're getting some value out of the sponsorship of the show. Exactly. You know, so we understand we're not making a, you know, this huge appeal, you know, we're not fixing to pass the offering plate or anything. <laughs> no. But, but, but if you can, you guys have done an awesome job helping us come up in the ratings on iTunes. You know, you're, you're amazing. We ask you to go and leave reviews and you do it. So we're, we're asking y'all again, just when you, when you hear a sponsor on the show and you got a spare minute, just go and check out their product. Because if you go with our link, they're going to know, Hey, right. we, we got some traffic from this ad on graveyard tales. We're going to run some more ads, you know, because we think that it may generate some more traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, you get to look at some cool products. You know, the show gets helped out by bringing in some sponsors for the show. And and uh, everybody wins here. Right. So. <laughs> it's a win-win situation. That's right. Um, so uh, before we get into it, um, this episode, uh, we're going, we asked a while back for listeners to send in their, uh, an audio recording of them doing our outro. And... That's still open. If y'all want to send in, email us a recording of you doing our outro, we are going to sporadically edit those into episodes. Um, So tonight, we're going to have one for you of a listener doing our outro at the end of this. So be prepared. Uh, You'll get a different voice at the end. Don't freak out. It's going to be a different voice, but it is going to be our outro. So we talked a whole lot about sponsors, Matt. Let's go ahead and hop into a sponsor, and then we'll come right back. Okay, Matt. So let's take a second, and let's talk about one of tonight's sponsors, Best Fiends. Now, everybody has their own guilty pleasure. Now, my guilty pleasure is a TV show called Cutthroat Kitchen with Alton Brown. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's it's a great show, but it's cheesy cooking show you know and and i do feel guilty of sometimes telling people i watch these kitchen competition shows you know but the one thing that i have zero guilt about is how much i love playing best fiends i mean best fiends will give me an endless source of fun and i can access it anytime right on my phone because i don't have to be connected to the internet just pull up my phone and it's right there and best fiends is a match three puzzle game like no other literally thousands of levels and new content added all the time i've been playing for a while now and i'm a little obsessed with it but the good thing is no matter how much i play there's always going to be more levels yeah and you know one of the things that i love about playing the game are the 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 bonus puzzles that come up you know that are that are seasonal or an extra challenge you can do to earn some rewards you know that keeps it fresh you know where you're not just going ah just keep playing the same puzzles you know they they change Mm -hmm. they change it up so frequently that it never gets dull you know there's always a new challenge for you and you know if if I'm going to play a game it's going to be a puzzle game and Best Fiends is a fantastic one you know the right. you know it's got really great graphics the colors are, are fun and they're bright and they pop you know and it's so easy to to just learn get on start playing 
and squashing some slugs. So Exactly. So you can download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. That's right. Download Best Fiends for free today on the Apple App Store or on Google Play. And remember, that's friends without the R. It's Best Fiends. All right, so we're back, and Matt, here's the thing. When you first brought up this topic to me, I thought, what is wrong with you? Do you have bumps in your head or something? (laughs) But then I figured it out. So why don't you tell everybody, what are we talking about tonight? Well, Adam, you you know, you rub your hands across your head, and you feel all the bumps and dents and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started shaving my head, I really took notice. Okay. In fact, I did not shave my head for several years because I was afraid that there was going to be some weird misshapen area. <laughs> afraid like, of what it looked uh, like. <laughs> finally just had to break down and do it. But but like, for example, I have this ridge on the back of my head that causes a little groove underneath it. Now I don't have I don't have the hot dog head. Right. You know. I was going <laughs> to say a pack of hot dogs back there. Yeah, I was going to uh, say I haven't noticed hot dog neck, but but it but it it can be particularly hard to shave there, and if I don't pay attention and I leave a little hair underneath there, it's what Amanda calls my back mustache. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's right at about the same level, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But did you ever think that those bumps, the little ridges or the dents or the bulges could predict your future? No, I figured they predicted my past and how stupid I was. <laughs> and in some cases they do. <laughs> but, but back in the late 1700s through the 1800s, people actually did. It was believed that one could determine aspects of your personality like if you were creative, violent, intelligent, shy, receptive, and, and a whole list of other attributes just by feeling and measuring the shape of your skull. So tonight, Adam and I are going to look into the pseudoscience of phrenology. This will be fun, I yeah. think. And and some of you have probably heard of phrenology. I mean, it it's not just you know, some weird arcane topic. Um, but if you, if you've never heard of it, then you're, you're, you're going to dig this. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're in for a treat. Um, now I think Matt, I figured out through all this research, uh, I think I figured out the underlying reason that this became a thing and the only reason that it stayed a thing for so long. Have you ever had somebody massage your scalp? Oh Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, that a great feeling. So I think yeah. that's the only reason they did it is that it was basically free scalp massages. And, you know, <laughs> it was just I mean, I, th- I think that's why. Hey, look, not not being not not having hair. The, one of the biggest downfalls of that is not going and getting, you know, the haircut with the shampoo. Oh, yeah. And then massaging your scalp. I, I miss that. Yeah. You know, I, yep. I wish I could just go in and go, hey, look, will you just, you know, wa- wash the top of my head and like give it a good massage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wash it, give it a massage, yeah. spit shine it a little bit. Hadn't had that in like five years now. So, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah. I can't well, get, and I can't get Amanda to do it. You know, it's like, rub my head, please. You know. Actually, you probably <laughs> could. Just tell her you're studying phrenology and yeah. get her to feel around on there, and then it'll be yeah. like a massage. Yeah, help help, help out with the show. Rub yeah, exactly. It, it's research. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So y'all are probably thinking, all right, you said phrenology a few times, and I kind of get the gist of it, but what exactly is phrenology? Well, this is according to the Victorian web. Um, phrenology was a faculty psychology theory of the brain and science of character reading. So yeah, all that, all that out of touching the head. But what the 19th century phrenologist called, quote, the only true science of mind. Phrenology was derived from the theories of the idiosyncratic Viennese physician Franz Joseph Gall. He lived from 1758 to 1828, um, and the basic tenets of Gall's system were this. One, the brain is the organ, uh, the organ of the mind. Two, the mind is composed of multiple distinct innate faculties. Three, because they are distinct, each faculty must have a separate seat or, quote, organ in the brain. Four, the size of the organ, other things being equal, is a measure of its power. Five, the shape of the brain is determined by the development of the various organs. And six, as the skull takes its shape from the brain... The surface of the skull can be read as an accurate index of psychological aptitudes and tendencies. So what does that sound like to you that he's saying, Matt? So in a nutshell, yeah, yeah, pretty much, you know, in a nutshell, what, what they're saying is that your, your brain is where your conscious mind lives. Now, that sounds trivial today. Right. But in the late 1700s, it wasn't necessarily that way. I mean, the the understanding of the human mind and the consciousness, it, it, it wasn't there. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people didn't think about this kind of stuff or, or, or they didn't understand it. At least the general public didn't. And psychology really was in its infancy. Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody had really taken the time to think about well, why, why do I think about myself? You know, why, why do I think this way? You know, people just kind of made assumptions that everybody thought exactly the same way. Sure. But studying this made people understand, well, well, this guy thinks differently from me. Wonder why. And this was a way for, you know, early psychologists to begin to study why is this guy creative and why is that guy a criminal? And why is she um, very motherly? Mm-hmm. And why is she very shy and timid? Because what they believed is all of those attributes had their own place inside your brain. Right. In and, their own organ. And as they grew, you developed those traits. Right. But. They believed that as those areas grew, your skull grew with them. Yep. So those those weird bumps and things you felt, if you had a weird bump over here, then whatever was whatever area was underneath that 
then you were going to be more of that. So if if you had you know you had the area of uh, your your openness, mm-hmm. you know, then they would determine that you were very approachable. Most likely had a lot of friends. Um, you were probably very intellectual. You know, you you um, maybe maybe you were you know a researcher. You know, you you read a lot. You were interested in things, and you were open to new ideas, all because you had this one little bump over this area that was a certain size that led them to believe this is you. Right. It's it's like when they say organs, think of individual muscles, or you know, uh, in the brain, and a lot of people think of it like they would think of. Um, you know, your heart, your kidney, your liver, all those types of organs shoved into your skull. But I kind of like to think of them as muscles because what they say is that as that organ gets stronger or, you know, gets bigger, then your aptitude for that characteristic gets stronger as well. So it's like working out. If you work out you know, then your muscles are going to get bigger. And like that old cartoon, if you only work out one side of you, then you're going to have a real big right arm and a real tiny left arm, you know? And so it's kind of that same theory. You can individually work out a certain quote unquote faculty or organ in your brain and cause it to get bigger. And some of it was working. Some of it was what you were just born with. And they felt that the brain case, the shape of the brain case was determined by the shape of your brain rather than the other way around. Yeah. Like our, we know now that our brain is pretty jelly in consistency. And, you know, if we had elongated skull, then our brain would be elongated to some degree. And so it, they believe that the skull itself kind of formed like cellophane over a ham. So if you've yeah, got that's a good way to put it, if you've got a weird shaped ham, then you're going to have a weird shaped looking cellophane on the outside of it. So it was believed that by examining the shape and unevenness of a head or skull, one could discover the development of the particular cerebral organs responsible for the different intellectual aptitudes and character traits, like we were just saying. So this goes on to say that, for example, a prominent protuberance in the forehead at the position attributed to the organ of benevolence was meant to indicate that the individual had a, quote, well-developed organ of benevolence and would therefore be expected to exhibit benevolent behavior. Now, from Britain... Phrenology spread to America and France in the 1830s, and in the 1840s, it was reintroduced to Germany. Now, it became far more successful in America. Well, phrenology died away in Britain by the early 1850s, but a new movement was reintroduced to Britain by the American phrenological Fowlers in the 1860s and 70s. The Fowlers had begun lecturing and reading heads for fees in New York in 1830. So their phrenology was wholly borrowed from the British modifications of Gaul's system. The Fowlers swept through Britain on a successful lecture tour before establishing various phrenological institutions, societies, 
and publishing concerns. So, Matt, why do you think it became more popular in America than other countries? You know, I don't know. I, I think I think Americans at the time were they were the ones that were more receptive to new ideas. Sure. Um, yep. Because, I mean, you know, they they were in the, you know, at the time, the new world. I mean, every, everything about, you know, America was was new and growing. So a, a new avant-garde idea was most likely going to be more accepted here than in Europe because of the the establishment that was already present right you know in Europe for you know centuries right that's you know, true so you know so a, a, a younger country is going to have younger ideas and like I said I, I I just think that you know that was it you know they were more open to to yep. things and you know, I, I don't know maybe maybe they were more more gullible to, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm kind of along with you. It, it, they're looking for new things, and and they're trying to they're trying to break away from a lot of the stigmas of the past. So they were more apt to get into that type of medicine, just like snake oil. Um, you know, snake oil salesman is a is a thing for a reason. Um, but they were looking for new medicines in that as well. Now, this goes on to say that in London in 1873, Mark Twain saw an advertisement for the services of a fellow American who had hung out a shingle on Fleet Street. At once inspired and skeptical, Twain made his way to the offices of Lorenz, Lorenzo N. Fowler, quote, practical phrenologist. So, quote, I found Fowler on duty, Twain wrote, amidst the impressive symbols of his trade, on brackets, on tables. All about the room stood marble white busts, hairless, every inch of the skull occupied by a shallow bump, and every bump labeled with its imposing name in black letters. So on Patreon, we'll put some pictures up of this, of, of these phrenology busts, so you can kind of see what we're talking about. But it's basically mm-hmm. a bald head, like a mannequin head today, with the different faculties or organs marked off and labeled. And you've seen them. I mean, yes. we've all seen them. You may not have realized what you were looking at. Some of them were color, especially those those diagrams. Um, but yeah, you've you've seen them or at least seen you know it's images of them, I'm sure. Similar to the skull I'm holding up now, but this is a skull replica that's got it's hard to see because of the light but it's got all the bones in the uh, head labeled nasal bone frontal bone uh you know lower jaw bone that kind of stuff but it was done for just the top of the head for the faculties now we mentioned franz gall so who was franz joseph gall franz gall he was born march 9th in 1758 um, and died August 22nd, 1828 in Paris. German anatomist and physiologist, he was a pioneer in ascribing cerebral functions to various areas of the brain. Convinced that mental functions are localized in specific regions of the brain and that human behavior is dependent upon these functions, Gall assumed that the surface of the skull faithfully reflects the relative development 
of the various regions of the brain. His popular lectures in Vienna on cranioscopy, called phrenology by his followers, offended religious leaders. They were condemned in 1802 by the Austrian government as contrary to religion and were banned. Well, three years later, he was forced to leave the country. We see that. Yeah, we see that in a lot of things. You know, if it's something that goes against something that the church at the time thought was established knowledge, then, you know, you were gone. It was a lot like um, all the astronomers back in the day when they said that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the sun revolving around the earth. Mm -hmm. Now, his concept of localized functions in the brain was proved correct when the French surgeon Paul Broca demonstrated the existence of a speech center in the brain in 1861. It was also shown, however, that since skull thickness varies, the surface of the skull does not reflect the topography of the brain in validating the basic premise of phrenology. Gall was the first to identify the gray matter of the brain with active tissue, your neurons, and the white matter with conducting tissue or the ganglia. Yeah, so, I mean, Gall was on to something here. Yeah. And, you know, in his own weird way. That's right. But, I mean, you know, Broca confirmed it. And, you know, Broca was with what I do. I, I, you know, I learned about Paul Broca, you know, early on in my career. Um, a condition known as Broca's aphasia. Uh, we I've see, heard that, but we see don't it know a lot. It. Yeah, we see it a lot in in, uh, in folks that have had strokes mm-hmm. um, or a traumatic brain injury. When when that area is impacted, uh, what the the person will will exhibit is they can understand what you're saying. They just cannot talk back to you or. Sure. Or their language is very difficult. Right. So right. a lot of them will have word finding problems. You know, they you know, they, they they can't come up with the word or they replace a word with the wrong word. Yeah. Like I I remember working with a lady years ago that every day you went to work with her, something was chicken. Yeah. And you had to figure out what chicken was mm-hmm. or she wasn't going to work with you. You know, some days it was water. Some days it was her snuff. Some days it was the shoes, whatever. If you couldn't figure out what she meant when she was telling you that she needed chicken, I'll tell you this, it was never chicken. I was going to say, that would get confusing if sometimes it really was chicken. It was never, ever chicken. You know, oh, that's good. But she couldn't come up with the word. Right. And, and she knew that she... She knew what she wanted, and she understood what you were telling her, but she could not say the word, so it just became chicken. Right. Um, and she couldn't correct it. She had no way to correct it. Um, you know, it just it takes sometimes it takes time for the brain to begin to heal, and those they they will get better. Sometimes sure. with with training, you know, it does improve. But I say all that so that you understand this is a very specific part of the brain, and and so it showed that you know gall was right parts of the brain control different aspects of the body right and so when we say this i mean he wasn't a dummy i mean he figured out a lot of stuff it was just where he went with it was a little misguided right and it, it was it was 
true in theory, but the practice that he evolved from that theory was incorrect. It's like the, uh, I, I had an, I had a teacher that, you know, would love to say these kind of things. He was like, all the, uh, all the fish in the Mississippi river swim upstream. Why? Because if they didn't, they all eventually would end up in the Gulf <laughs> and you'd be like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you're like, it's a flawed argument. <laughs> yeah. It, flawed argument. Same as all the fish in the Mississippi swim upstream, because if they didn't, they would just be floating downstream. That's right. You know, you know, you don't include the fact that, well, they swim upstream sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, but you see, you know, it's like, okay, he was onto something, but you know, the, the way he presented it, he wasn't exactly right, but we are talking about, you know, the late 1700s. So, yep. 1700s, early 1800s when our knowledge of medicine wasn't that great. Right. Now, we talked that Gaul had, you know, ideas of what the organs or the faculties of the brain were. Well, he had 27 original. And so let's go over what those are. There was impulse to propagation, tenderness for the offspring or parental love, friendly attachment or fidelity, valor and self-defense, murder and carnivorousness, sense of cunning, larceny or sense of property, pride, arrogance, love of authority, ambition and vanity, circumspection, aptness to receive an education of the memoria realis, sense of locality, recollection of persons. That part of my brain must be damaged <laughs> because... I, I cannot remember a name for the life of me. Like, I can remember someone's face for years. Yeah. But oh, yeah. five minutes after you tell me your name, it's probably not in my head anymore. I, I don't know why, but that recollection of person's name in quotations, I cannot do. I don't know what's wrong. So if if you ever meet me and then I don't remember your name later, don't take it out on me. I know who you are. I just don't know your name. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. Hi, hi partner. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> bud. <laughs> Buddy old pal. Um, so to continue, uh, faculty for words or verbal memory, faculty of language, disposition for coloring and the delighting in colors. Sense for sounds, musical talent, arithmetic, counting, time. I didn't get that one. That That's probably busted, too. Uh, mechanical skill. That one I'm okay with. Uh, comparative perspicuity or sagacity. Metaphysical perspicuity. Wit, casualty, sense of inference. Poetic talent. Good nature, compassion, moral sense. And mimic theosophy or sense of God and religion. And finally, perseverance and firmness. So a lot going on there with his original faculties of the brain. Yeah. And so you see where we're going when we're telling you, look, he was on to something. He just he he kind of went in a different direction. These are very um, 
you know, uh, vague aspects of personality, not necessarily motor control or ability. Right. Um, it's it's more or less, you know, a personality test. Well, and I can see where in his thing, if you've got okay sense for sounds and musical talent, then yeah, there's there's a part of your brain that you use more for musical ability and and another part that you use when he says sense of locality number 12 for navigating your way through somewhere okay exactly i get that but then he hits stuff like theosophy or sense of god and religion and i don't think i could be wrong and they may prove me wrong you know in several decades of research on um you know more into the human brain but I don't think there's one particular part of your brain that says if you're going to be religious or not. You know, I think that is kind of a combination of spots, but yeah. he's got it localized into one. Well, I mean, you know, there's an argument there that, you know, re- religion is a learned thing. You know, okay. if, yep. if you if you grew up in a Buddhist household, what do you learn? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. If you take if you take a baby and you avoid the teaching of any type of religion, are they going to grow up religious? Pro- probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Um. You know, until they learn it on their own. Sure. You know, and and make their own decision. Um. So yeah, I don't I don't think that's something that you're necessarily born with. But again, you know, he's attempting to. To, to locate these areas of the brain that would determine what would be, what would your personality be? You know, what, what would your predisposition be? Right. And, you know, by, by doing this, you know, he's telling, he, he's telling folks, oh, well, you know, this area for, um, for wit and casualty and sense of inference, you know, you, you're obviously, a, you know, a humorous person. Um, you know, you and you enjoy social gatherings, and you know, you you have uh, good insight on on things. You know that may that may very well be true, but if you took somebody of a certain age and you told them this based on you know a phrenological exam, would they not be predisposed to? try to nurture that behavior if that's right. what they learned may maybe maybe not but what if they weren't necessarily that person would they become that person if you told them that very possible it's it's the power of suggestion and uh you know it, it's same as we talk about when you're listening to evps and you're told what you're supposed to hear you hear it but if you're not told, you may not hear anything. So I think I think there's a good argument to that, that people after these phrenological exams may say, oh, he was spot on because look, look how funny I am now and da, 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 da. Well, you know, you, you became that way due to what you were told. Yeah. But in the, in a negative aspect, you know, if he said you're the area for murder and carnivorousness, or larceny is you know quite large what 
are you telling me I'm a thief or a murderer or yep. that I'm predisposed right to to be that to yep. to to be a criminal essentially you need to watch out and then you'll live the rest of your life scared that you're going to commit larceny or murder but the the key here is maybe not what the person that was having the exam did with that information it's what other people could have done with that information and we're going to get exactly. into that we're going to get into that a little bit exactly so before we get into that we mentioned Lorenzo Fowler. So we need to discuss him real quick. And this is from the history of phrenology.com. Now, Lorenzo Niles Fowler, 1811 to 1896, was the son of New York farmers who grew up working on the farm and was educated at the district school. He later studied to become a clergyman at Amherst Academy. And by the age of 16, he had helped to found a student temperance society. In 1834, his elder brother Orson Squire Fowler became a convert to phrenology while a student at Amherst College, New York, from fellow students and from reading J.G. Spursheim and George Cohn. Hey, Adam, let's take a break for just a moment and talk about one of tonight's sponsors, Every Plate. Now, Every Plate is a meal delivery service that is owned by HelloFresh. So all of you listeners who have tried HelloFresh, you ought to give Every Plate a try. You can experience full plates and fuller wallets with Every Plate, which is America's best value meal kit. You get meals that you'll enjoy and your bank account will love delivered right to your door, contact free. Now, getting dinner on the table used to be a challenge, but now you can let every plate shop, deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a great price. And the recipes come together in about 30 minutes. They're definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. Oh, I know. And and like you said, it it one thing is it's contact free. So when we get ours delivered, we get a knock on the door and then the box is just sitting there on your door. And they package it so that even if you're not at home when it gets delivered, all the stuff is going to stay fresh and stay cool until you get home because they got big ice blocks and everything in there so you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to spoil sitting on your uh, sitting on your porch from when they drop it off to when you get home from work. What I really love about it is that me and Ashley and Michael all will cook together, and we have a we have a written out recipe to follow. Where if like I'm cooking or Ashley cooking, then it's hard to say, okay, you go do this, you go do that. But if we got it written out, we know how to do it, and we're teaching Michael how to how to cook. You know, he's learning how to chop potatoes and and slice carrots and stuff like that. And we told him, look, when you get older, you're going to want to know how to cook because you're going to go off to college and you can't survive on fast food alone, even though I did. And uh, so we're, we're teaching him now, which is great. I love it. Yeah. And our oldest, she loves when we get we get our every plate box. She takes over and she wants to be in the kitchen and she wants to do it. And now that she's back at school, she wants to continue to use every plate so that she can not have to live on 
ramen noodles and cereal. Right. You know, she's going to be able to cook really delicious meals for a great price, and she doesn't have to worry about getting out and going to the store, losing that time to study or or, or class time. You know, she's going to just have the food right there so she can get going. It's fantastic. It is. And our listeners can try every plate for just $1.99 a meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering the code GRAVEYARD199. That's G-R-A-V-E-Y-A-R-D and the number's 199. That's right. A fantastic deal. So you can get started with every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off another two weeks by going to everyplate.com and entering our promo code graveyard199. Now, Lorenzo soon followed his brother. Before long, they were reading heads and offering lectures on the subject assisted by their sister, Charlotte. They immediately found the new science of the mind profitable and eventually gave up on the idea of becoming clergymen. Everybody's got an angle. Exactly. (laughs) And you'll notice a pattern as I talk about these people with what they started out doing and then what they moved into. Well, in 1836, Lorenzo set up a phrenological establishment in New York, and in 1838, Orson set up a similar establishment in Philadelphia. Here, in the same year, they founded the American Phrenological Journal and Miscellany... um, Miscellany American Phrenological Journal, which would continue until 1911. Lorenzo was particularly interested in the casting of plaster phrenological busts. With the phrenological office to serve as a museum, they began to collect copies of the collections of the Edinburgh Phrenological Society and James DeVille in London. Now, the Fowlers expanded into publishing reprints of the phrenological greats such as Spurs, and Combe, as well as their own works. By the 1840s, they had one of the largest publishing concerns in New York. Now, Lorenzo traveled to England in 1860 with his wife Lydia and daughter Jessie and partner Samuel Wells, and Fowler lectured widely in Britain, and his tours led to the creation of new phrenological societies just as earlier lecturers like Spurs, and Combe, had inspired similar societies decades before. Yeah. Hey, and an interesting thing about the about the Fowlers, when they were in New York, their office had it was known as the Phrenological Cabinet, and and it became like a, a like a, a, an attraction, like a like a tourist thing. Yeah, that's right. It, and you know, Adam mentioned you know they made it kind of a museum. I mean, it was it was really strange because. They would take these phrenological portraits of famous people's heads, mm-hmm. um, and at least one of the ones that was specially commissioned post mortem was Aaron Burr. Oh yeah. So the Fowlers ordered a cast of Aaron Burr's head after he died, and said that upon examination, that Burr's organs of secretiveness and destructiveness were far larger than those of the average person of course they would of course they would make that determination but i mean that's how popular this stuff became oh yeah 
and and how popular the Fowlers had become. Oh yeah, you know that, that the Fowlers would, were wild. They would visit their office just to be able to see these busts that they had made of of famous people. Right, right. Now, Fowler lectured at the International Exhibition of 1862, and they returned briefly to New York. He then immigrated to Britain to enjoy the rich phrenological pickings and founded the Fowler Institute, Ludgate Circus, London, in 1863. Here, he and his family and employees gave practical instruction on phrenology, providing readings and character analysis, and offered weekly courses on practical phrenology. They also sold the ubiquitous phrenological literature and phrenological busts. Now, the Institute had its own circulating and reference library and a museum of skulls and casts, like Matt was saying. Now, in the 1870s, Fowler returned to the British lecture circuit and was particularly popular in the Midlands. In 1886, he established and presided over the British Phrenological Association, which endured until 1967. 1967? 1967. No. And it's after they should have learned that was bunk. But, (laughs) you know. Now, the Fowler's phrenology was entirely a derivation of the British phrenology formed by Spursheim and Combe. Of course, in the history of ideas, there are no real copies, merely more or less similar imitations, this says. Therefore, although the Fowler's phrenology was essentially borrowed wholesale and the doctrines of health, temperance, and practical ethics and morality were virtually a transcript of Combe's Constitution of Man in 1828, the Fowler's rendition of these inspiration was at the same time something new. Now, to the older phrenologist of Britain, Fowler's phrenology was a vulgarization, and they they were not happy about it. Well, George Combe avoided mentioning or meeting the Fowlers during his successful lecture tour of America, 1838 to 1840, and the Fowlers were professed practical phrenologists who read thousands of heads for fees, lectured widely, and also wrote extensively on the subject. Now, like Matt was saying, that a bunch of famous people, you know, talked to and got stuff done with the Fowlers. Well, amongst the well-known heads read by Lorenzo were Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, and Clara Barton. Yeah, those so, are pretty well-known people. Big people for the time, yeah. Well, still big people today. Well, that's true, but I mean when they were when they were alive, they were already famous. They didn't get right. famous because they were dead. So Right. Now, in addition to phrenology, Lorenzo supported a number of unorthodox and reformist innovations, including hydropathy and phrenomesmerism. Lorenzo co-founded and was for a time vice president of the American Hydropathic Association. He also mesmerized patients before surgical operations. Now, Lorenzo Fowler returned to America for a visit in 1896, where he died of a stroke on September 2nd, 1896. Look how apropos. Yeah. That he died right. of a stroke. Right. Now, I'm not making at the light time, of it. No, at the time they wouldn't have realized it, but now. Right. Yeah, I mean that that was that that's that it's kind of ironic 
that the guy that you know spent an entire career on you know studying and and teaching on the brain you know that he would he would die of a stroke right right so real quick before i hand it off to matt we've got to talk about johan gaspar spursheim because he was mentioned in um lorenzo's work a lot so uh, Spursheim, uh, he was a Lutheran farmer's son from Longick near Trier. Now, Spursheim was, like Gaul, originally intended for the clergy. So that's what I was saying. Both of them seemed to be going into religion, and then they moved into phrenology. Well, Spursheim studied divinity and philosophy at the University of Trier, but he fled to Vienna in 1799, purportedly to escape the invading French. Now, in Vienna, Spursheim studied medicine and supported himself by tutoring a nobleman's children. Gaul was the nobleman's physician, and this is how Gaul and Spursheim first met in 1800. Now, Spursheim attended Gaul's lectures avidly and was eventually allowed to attend, uh, attend gratis until they were uh, interdicted in December 1801. Now, beginning in 1804, Spursheim was employed by Gaul as dissectionist. Spursheim accompanied Gaul in the role of the latter's triumphant European lecture tour, 1805 to 1807. And Spursheim made many uh, alterations to Gaul's system. Um, frontispiece to the physio- physiognomical system. Um I'm not going to try to say that again. That's just how it was. Um, it's, it's written so strange. I don't understand. I, I, I don't know. It, but it must have been something lost in the translation. I, yeah, I think I was it, reading it going, what? Yep. Now, in this, in this book that I'm not going to try to pronounce again, um, <laughs> He boasted, quote, this book itself will show how much I have improved our doctrine in the last few years because the system must assume a more scientific arrangement and be considered in a more philosophical manner than Dr. Gall has been accustomed to do in his lectures, end quote. Now, Spursheim increased the number of organs from 27 to 33 and changed the names of several. Spursheim also arranged the faculties into a, a hierarchical taxa, taxonomic system of two orders and five genres, um, ascending from organs common to man and lower animals, such as phyloprogenitiveness, um, the love of offspring, starting at the back of the head and moving forward, organs of the moral sentiments, some of which were shared by man and animals, and others intellectual, organs peculiar to man, such as veneration, size, and language located in the forehead. So basically what that article ended up saying there at the end was that he took all of the quote-unquote faculties and organs of the brain, and he said, okay, these are ones that... You know, only man has the language and and stuff like that. These are ones that um, are common to man and lower animals. You know that that uh, lower animals being you know apes and and tigers and 
bears, oh my, um, that he felt we shared with them. So to kind of put it in more modern parlance, what people talk about, about the inherent animal brain, your lower brain, the, the, the parts of your brain that are, you know, uh, uh, um, survival and fear. The most base, base. Yes. Yep, exactly. Um, And he even put those at the back of the head moving forward. And honestly, that's kind of what we see nowadays is that a lot of those base things, those the animal brain stuff is kind of back there toward the brainstem. And then as it got bigger, we added on to the brain with speech and blah, 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 blah. But he was in a way onto something. But like we said earlier, his application of this knowledge was a little off. Yeah. So, so now, now you've got a really good background on what phrenology was, the, the practitioners of it, um, and, and how they presented their material and the following that they had. Um, but nowadays, it, it seems absurd that someone could rub your head and determine that if you were, you were going to be successful or if you were you know, more apt to dig ditches. Right. You know, but again, so little was known about the human brain that when this material was presented in such a dramatic way and and Gall and Spursheim were supposedly excellent presenters. Um, oh, I'm sure. You know, the uh, Gall was a, a, a excellent orator and Spursheim was able to present um, examples and demonstrations very well so they they were really able to draw people in and people soaked it up like a sponge and and not only did they buy into it they put it into practice and so as, as i mentioned earlier I, I i teased it you know if if you knew this information about yourself you know what would it do to you but what if someone that believed in this had that information about you, what would it change about right. how they approached you or, or what they thought of you? And, right. and during the height of phrenology from about 1820 to 1840, um, they were seeing employers who would refuse to hire individuals unless they went to see a phrenologist first. It's crazy. And some businesses even had phrenology practitioners on staff or contracted waiting to check prospective employees. I mean, employees. Before we hire you, go get your head rubbed. Exactly. Uh, You know, employers wanted confirmation that a person had good character traits. Otherwise, how would they know if this this new hire was going to be honest and reliable? Right. I mean. That's what every employer wants, but there's no way to know that. But the, sure, but, I was going to say when I did any interviews for hiring, I mean, I wished I had something as simple as a phrenological exam to tell me that hey, don't <laughs> hire this guy; he's never going to work, and all he's going to do is argue with you. You know, right. that would have saved me so much grief back in the day. You know, so so nowadays you get like a you know a background check and mm-hmm. references and a drug screen right (laughs) that's that's as close as they could get but does it necessarily make you a bad person 
You know, that's what they were trying to figure out by doing these type of exams. You know, right. and anyway. I'll be honest with you, the the background check and all this stuff, your past doesn't necessarily predict your future. Exactly. So it's almost the same as rubbing your head. Yeah. You know, you might as well just give me a head rub because just because a either I've got a felony or B, I don't have a felony doesn't mean anything in the future. I could have a felony and never commit another one, yeah. or I could not have one, and then all of a sudden I commit a felony, you know? Yeah. So not that I'm downing the hiring process at all, but I'm just trying to, you know, draw inferences here from the same exactly. information. I mean, and you might not be a convicted criminal, but be a terrible person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've known horrible, a lot of those. Horrible employee. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've known plenty of nice people, you know, that I couldn't get to come to work, yep. you know, couldn't get to do their stuff. Yep. You know, they look like, great on paper, but then in, in, uh, you know, in practice, they, they will never listen to you and <laughs> they, yeah. they'll steal stuff from the company and all that. And on paper, they look just fine. That's exactly right. So, uh, but one of one popular practitioner, of uh, phrenology, uh, one Charles Caldwell was also a slave owner from Kentucky. Now he spent some time in Europe where he learned about phrenology. And when he returned to the States, he examined the skulls of his slaves and determined that they had an overly large area of cautiousness and veneration, which meant that they were Tameable. Now, this is a That's quote. Horrible. Tameable and thus made ideal slaves. That's horrible. So you you see where we're going with this. This information in another person's hands about you is terrible. It is. And in a That's... lot of ways, in a lot of ways, phrenology was scientific racism. Yeah. Yep. It was it was one way for for people to say, oh well, you know, if if a Caucasian skull is different from an Asian skull or an African American skull or from a European skull or whatever, that you were somehow superior because of the shape of your skull. Yep. It's asinine and horrible. And but it, that's what I mean. Unfortunately, people used it for that. And as and as stupid as that idea sounds, it was popularized. Mm-hmm. So so not only was you know phrenology, as we know now, bunk, but it was dangerous. Oh yeah. You know because it fed into a lot of prejudices that people already had, and now they were using it as scientific proof that they were right. So, you know, and, and phrenology, you know, when it, it did, it was used to categorize people. Those in the upper class would point to the geography of their own skull to explain why they were better than others. You know, it wasn't because of their skill or because of wealthy ancestors. It was because their brains were better developed. Oh, sure. Yeah. Now, you know, those in the middle or lower classes who also accepted the practice because it pointed out ways that they could try and improve their social status. But, you know, this, this, this right here is, this is a social issue. 
Okay, this was just another way for people to go. I want what they have. How do I get it? And you know, if if I can see that a part of my brain is is better apt to do something, then maybe I can do that and I can get ahead in life. And it's you know, confirmation bias. You've already got this thought in your your head that you're better than somebody else. Yeah. So you're going to find reasons why you're better in something as stupid as, you know, this bump on my head over here makes me better than somebody without this bump on my head. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't get it. I just, I don't understand. When you, when you really break down what, you know, society believed, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, it's shocking. Yeah. You know, but of course I am 100% sure that 200 years from now, someone is going to look back and say the exact same thing about us. That's true. So, you know, 2220, somebody's going to look back and go, can you believe what those idiots believed in 2020? Yeah, no kidding. So the 19th century was really the heyday of psychology. And that was thanks predominantly to Sigmund Freud and, and his contemporaries. Now, one of the most important theories of psychology states that once a person understands himself, then he can improve himself. And a person's DNA did not determine the final outcome. Now, the same was true for phrenology. Even though it involved measuring skulls, um, the shape of which is determined by your DNA, Mm -hmm. uh, the main ideas for self-improvement stuck and became embedded in psychology. So essentially it's saying that, look, if, if, if you had a phrenological exam and they told you that, you know, this particular air, this, this particular area of your brain was underdeveloped that you could somehow take that and work to make it better. Just like if, 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 if I say to someone, um, you know, your, uh, your hamstrings are too tight, you know, your quad muscles are weak. We need to work to fix that by mm-hmm. exercising them. It's the same thing. A, a, a phrenologist would say um, your area for, uh, you know, compassion or mathematics is weak. So what would you do? You would work on those traits to exercise your brain and make it right. better. Now, it had nothing to do with phrenology because the information you were getting was probably trash. Um, yeah. But the idea that somebody wanted this exam in order to try to improve themselves, you know, that that was a quality. You know, that was something that came out. But, you know, as Freud would explain, you know, those things had more to do with your DNA um, than it did the, the shape of your skull. Speaking of Freud, you know what a Freudian slip is. It's where you say one thing and mean your mother. <laughs> But I love it. I love it. Now, the entire point of understanding how a person's brain shaped their behavior was ideally to enable them to change, like we just said. Now, phrenologists believed that free, independent people, once their faults were pointed out to them, could alter the shapes of their heads and become better human beings. (sighs) Wasn't exactly how it was put into practice, but it was definitely an aspect of it. And it was was probably one of the larger reasons that 
uh, folks sought out phrenological exams is how do I become better? You know, how, right. how do I make myself better? You know, they're working with flawed information, but still they yeah. were trying. And I mean, that's what, you know, I would say that probably the vast majority were doing, um, like we talked before, it was used for some horrible things as yeah. well. Um, but that, I mean, that can be anything, any information put in the hands of the wrong person can be construed. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I think the original intent of all of it was how to better yourself and how to figure out what's wrong with you. Yeah. Exactly. You know, why, think, why do I think this way? And again, the basis of this pseudoscience was was not negative. It was an effort to study the brain. But people had a tendency to take these things and twist them for their own devices. Always. Yeah, always. How, how can I use this and control these people? You know, mm-hmm. How can I do this and get rich? How can yep. I do this and prove to society that I'm better than all these other people? Right. You know, it was, you know it's somebody's idea to... To, to twist sure. things to their advantage. Um, sure. But speaking of twisting things to their advantage, um, much like what we see today, uh, someone's always looking to make a buck, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was typical for businesses to crop up to sell tools and other implements um, for all kinds of medical fads during the Victorian era. And, I mean, Adam and I have talked about this on other shows about places that were set up as – like essentially health spas, you know, yeah, yep. you're, you're dying. You have, you know, tuberculosis, you've got some other kind of respiratory illness or the doctors tell you, you got four months to live, come here, drink from the sulfur spring, bathe yep. in these crystal clear waters and it will make you healthy and it's going to cost you 200 bucks. Right. Okay. Right. But phrenology was no different. The Fowler brothers, um, Orson and Lorenzo, together with uh, a man named Samuel Robert Wells, started a business that sold phrenology tools. Um, these oh, tools, they, yeah, they, they included measuring devices like calipers, uh, charts, those those casts of the busts, you know, with mm-hmm. the, with all the the you know the phrenological map. Uh, and and, and other so what you're items. saying is What's Lorenzo that? was a busty man. <laughs> <laughs> he was a busty fellow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, when you and I were talking off mic about these um, phrenological kits, I would so love to have one oh, and put yeah. in my cabinet. I mean, I, I we went to a um, uh, an antiques store this last weekend, I think. And uh, they had an old kit of medicine bottles. Oh, yeah. Now, he wanted like $350 for yep. them. So I was not buying them. But I I just envisioned how good those would look sitting up in my cabinet with the skulls and yeah. stuff. Because he had, you know, um, like the, the old lead medicine. And I don't know if that's what was in there, but he did have pills in some of the bottles, you know. Um and it, it would have been so cool, but it was one of those old school kits that you open up mm-hmm. and all the vials are tucked into their own little sleeve. Yep. 
you know, and so I can picture these phrenology kits being the same way. It, yeah. It's like a vampire hunting kit or anything oh, else. Yeah. When you open it up, you've got all the implements of the trade, your calipers, your measuring stick, uh, uh, a mallet to lower someone's bump on their head. You know, I don't know if that was true, but I mean. Yeah. And I mean, they, they would come in these really cool wooden boxes and they were usually lined with felt or silk, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for any of these medical tools. And I'm sure the phrenology tools were very similar. You know, they wanted to present them as, you know, you need this. If you're going to do this you right. need it, and, and you want to look professional. But, you know, I have to I have to go I have to go off a little bit. I got to tell this story because when we talk about old medical equipment, I I love this story. You know, I had a really good friend um, who uh, unfortunately he he died many years ago. Um, But one of his favorite things to do was to go to these, you know, like estate sales and and, and stuff. And he would buy stuff and he would sell it in a local antique store. Well, Mm -hmm. what? The story was told at his at his, at his funeral, um, but it was great because it just embodied him, and he had he had purchased a garage, like at a yard sale. It was yeah. one of these. I'll give you two hundred bucks for the garage. Whatever's in there, I get for this amount. That'd be they cool. hadn't even cataloged yeah. what was in there. And they're like, right, it's yours, man. So he loads up a truck with all this stuff. Doesn't even know what he has, and so he gets it. And he's starting to go through all this stuff, and he gets, he finds this wooden box that has an, a, an old antique enema kit. Okay, holy crap! Glass, <laughs> Literally, glass bottle, the hook, uh, the whole shoot match. Wow! Okay? And he's like, "Oh, this is this is gold. It's like this gold, Jerry, gold." You know, yeah. <laughs> he was so excited about finding this thing, and so everybody told him. Dude, nobody wants this. And he's like, somebody's going to want it. Some doctor is going to want this to put in his office, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's going to be great. I'm gonna, it's going to be fantastic. So he puts it in the antique store, and there it sits. And it sits. And he goes back, and, you know, people would occasionally would ask him, hey, did you ever sell that enema kit? No, it's still there. No, it's still there. Well, one day, he goes by, and it's gone. Somebody bought it. Hmm. But he's calling everybody. So I told y'all, somebody's going to buy that. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> somebody bought it. So a few weeks later, his birthday comes up. <laughs> he's opening up all of his presents. And he's got this big present. You know, it's heavy. He starts to unwrap it. Opens it up. It's that enema kit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Like, what of what it bought it and giving it to him as a birthday present. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love, I love it. it. I love that story. God, and I, I miss I miss him so bad. I mean, he was such a great guy. But that was a funny, funny story. Yeah. Well, um, and that ties into what I was going to say. If anybody wants to buy me an old medical kit for my birthday, um, I'll tell you when my birthday is. <laughs> <laughs> and if you find an enema kit, I want to know about it. <laughs> yeah, send that to Matt. I'll take the other stuff. Matt wants the ancient enemas. So. <laughs> so they didn't do a show on uh on the history channel ancient enemas yeah ancient enemas we take a deep dive no pun intended into the oh man we've gone off the rails now <laughs> oh bad badly <laughs> but you know phrenology but getting back on track um actually is credited for creating a lot of uh a lot of terms that people still use today like the term 
highbrow or lowbrow to determine whether something is fancy or whether it's just commonplace. Um, And and both of those terms come from the practice of phrenology. Uh, With someone with a higher forehead or brow line was considered cultured. Those with lower ones, maybe like the caveman from the Geico ads, uh, were associated with a lesser class. Yeah, so we still still hear those terms today. I Um, always find it super interesting when you learn where a phrase or word came from yeah and you know we learned two of them right here yeah and here's another one um the term shrink now used as a slang for a psychiatrist and Mm -hmm. the term well-rounded people wanted to shrink undesirable traits particularly those that were diagnosed by a phrenologist so they went to one to get their head examined literally yeah so yeah that's that's pretty cool um and and although phrenology was extremely popular uh during much of the 19th century it really began to fade out after the civil war um and and those who still practiced phrenology were pretty much discredited but some of the parts some parts of the science stuck around Uh, for example the uh as we said earlier, the British Phrenological Society didn't disband until 1967. Yep. I was just thinking about that. And and again, is how long that thing stayed around. Yeah, I know. And I mean, so, so people really stuck with this even almost a century after it had pretty much been debunked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pretty interesting, but uh, you know, one of the questions I had studying this is, is there anybody that's doing this today? You know, is is there anybody that still works in this area of phrenology or has, you know, has changed it maybe a little bit? Here's my thought before you get into it. Mm-hmm. We see so many fads come back around mm-hmm. from older things, um, you know, or, or people, not necessarily a fad, but people finding validity in ancient treatments like i'm a big proponent of herbal medicine yeah herbalism um i've told you that before i, I almost went and got my uh, herbalist degree at one point and and you know so i'm a big believer in herbal medicine that our forefathers taught us and and you know they didn't have medicine uh like we do now so how did they live well Thanks to these herbs. My guess is because of stuff like that, there's probably a at least one person that has tried to bring back phrenology. Oh, I'm sure. Probably more more than a few. Yeah. But, you know, neuroscientists today are using concepts that were presented by Gall and Spursheim to relate the size of certain areas of the brain with corresponding traits. So not necessarily the size of the skull, mm-hmm. but the size of the brain. So right. if, if we're, if we're looking beyond the skull, we, we can see that maybe there is a correspondence there. Now, two leaders in this new field are psychologists, Colin DeYoung of the university of Minnesota and Jeremy Gray from Yale and they've been using a brain scanner to search for evidence of the so-called big five personality traits. Now, there is a growing scientific consensus that every human personality is a unique mix of just five core attributes. 
extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, openness slash intellect, and conscientiousness. Now, every other character trait is under is a subset of one of these big five, okay? Sure. Or, or the opposite of it. Now, these traits can be reliably measured using personality inventories, which I think we've probably all had at some point in time. You've taken a personality test, even if it was in the back of a cosmopolitan. You've, you've yeah. done something like this. The, now, like the Enneagram. Yeah. Yep. Now, DeYoung and Gray ran these personality inventories on more than 100 volunteers uh, in their study, and basic brain research has in recent years revealed a great deal about the purposes and functions of the various brain regions, and these scientists drew upon these insights. Now, they wanted to see if these volunteers' dominant personality traits matched up in a way that made sense with the size of these clusters of neurons that make up the brain. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you take extroversion. Now, extroversion includes qualities like assertiveness, sociability. Not olive oil. <laughs> extroversion olive oil? <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> see, see folks, I get, I get on a roll and this is what I get. <laughs> I can't let you stay on a roll for too long. <laughs> <laughs> Extraversion olive oil. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered why they call it that. It seems pretty introverted to me, but, you know. I've never met too many olives that are all that talkative, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, so extroversion, it, it includes qualities like assertiveness, sociability, and talkativeness. And all these traits have to do with positive emotions and, re and rewarding social experiences. But based on this, the scientists guessed that the most extroverted people would have larger-than-normal brain regions associated with the sensitivity to reward, okay? Hmm. So you do something, and something positive happens back to you. Right, now, right. When they used an MRI to measure the volume of these extroverted people's brain, that's exactly what they found. Hmm. So when they reported uh, in the Journal of Psychological Science, these regions were known to be involved in the reward experience were, in fact, larger. That's cool. Yeah. So, like I said, Gall was on to something. He just, he, he yep. just, he just didn't have the, maybe the, the ability, the technology to really dig deeper or right. at, least, at least get under the surface of the skull. Yeah. Now, similarly, th scientists found that neuroticism, which is a tendency toward negative emotions like irritability and anxiety, uh, was associated with the brain regions involved in threat and punishment. Now, agreeableness, which is kind of a catch-all for altruism, you know, empathy, cooperation, compassion, mm -hmm. correlated with regions known to process those traits. And finally, the most conscientious volunteers had unusually large brain structures involved in executive powers like future planning and following complex rules. 
Hmm. So to sum it up, the brain studies gave strong support to the idea that the big five personality traits have a biological foundation. So the, hmm. the size and shape of your brain in certain areas can help dictate what type of personality you really have. Right. So it in basically, there may be a larger area of the brain associated with this one trait that you have, but it doesn't grow and bulge out. It just, that area of your brain uses more of the neurons and gray matter inside your head than on other people. Bingo. It fires more uh, in a wider pattern around that. Bingo. And what you'll see is when you look at some of these studies, you'll see these, and, and you've seen them, You've seen them on on documentaries where they do these studies on people that were like violent criminals, where mm-hmm. they they show them images and then they do use a functional MRI where they see parts of the brain. They use the term light up. You know, yeah. it's like they yep. they show somebody a negative image and they show somebody a positive image. They show somebody a color and certain areas of the brain light up or don't light up, and so they begin to make inferences about well, okay, so somebody that was predisposed to this kind of personality, these are the areas of the brain that's most active. And, and right. so again, you know, technology and, and research and, and understanding um, has allowed that what Gall began and what Fowler and Spursheim, you know, forwarded, there was, there was an underlying truth there. You know, they just needed another couple of hundred years to, to, to really bring it forward and get out of the idea that, you know, we can rub your skull and we can figure out, yeah. you know, what's going on underneath, which you really yeah. can't. Rather than, yeah, because they thought that the external mimicked the internal so that, you know, you could see into the brain without actually having to look into the brain yeah and you know we know now that that's impossible that the bumps on your head are just from the stupid times you ran into the cabinet rather than what's what faculty of your brain is larger than another yeah but what what i take out of all this is that it's it's absolutely fascinating that what became known as a pseudoscience actually helped forward you know, the true science of, you know, psychology and how the brain works, you know, mm-hmm. at, at least in, in some, in some part, you know, right. it, it, it gave, it gave scientists a, 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 a jumping board, you know, somewhere to begin. Okay. We, we know you can't rub somebody's skull and figure out their personality, but you know, this yeah. idea how much that, truth is in yeah, that. This idea that different parts of the brain hold different aspects of your personality, that's pretty curious. Let's look into mm-hmm. it more. And let, right. let's see if there's anything to this. And what they found is there indeed is. And I think I, I think that's remarkable. You know. Oh yeah, me too. You know, it's like what what are, what are we gonna learn next? You know, that yeah. you know, some 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 wacko doing something, you know, back in the 1750s, you know, all of a sudden we're like, hey, he 
he was right on these things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His theory was basically sound, but he messed up on yeah. this, this, and this. He, yeah. He, 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 he went off. He missed it. You know, he was on yeah. the right path and then he veered a little bit too far. Yep. And I, I think, honestly, when you look at a lot of science and medicine, then you come across that same thing in several different areas, you know, like it can't name any off the top of my head, but I know there's other things that you've got a weird theory from centuries ago that somebody now takes another look at and they're like, wait, he may have been on to something, but because of the lack of scientific understanding was not applying it correctly. Yeah. So what do you guys think? This 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 episode is a little bit uh, different from what we normally present, but we thought the idea of talking about a pseudoscience um, and, and, and you know, how, how it developed and, you know, some of these strange things, it does touch on other things that we've talked about in other shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus, it's just it's just really cool it to is cool. look into stuff like this. That's so. right. That's right. So let us know what you think. You know, have did you, did you know about phrenology? Have you ever seen um, any of these charts or these busts? You know, have you ever ha- heard about somebody predicting your future by studying the bumps and curves and bulges on your skull? Um, you know, let us know. And you know, the best place to do that is in our in our Facebook group. And you know, get on Facebook, search Graveyard Tales. You'll find us. We've got a lot of fantastic members, and it is probably one of the oh, active, yeah. most active groups I have ever been a part of. And it's fantastic, even though you don't. You know, I had to tell somebody today, hey, guess what? I learned that there were messages on Facebook that I didn't know I had. And I just responded <laughs> to a listener who messaged me in July. Uh, so <laughs> I apologize greatly that I had no idea that it was even there, but now I do. So Matt's um, bad with the social media. He's a social media so. guy. Uh, and that includes our other social media, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and that's why Adam is the chief tweeter around here. <laughs> Although I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to get better. Yeah, you're um, getting better. But uh, don't forget to go rate and review us on iTunes because it does help bring us up the charts, which makes it easier to find. And And after you do that, you can slide on over to our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. And on our website, you can listen to the show. You can find links to purchase uh, merchandise and you can uh, become a patron. And as we mentioned earlier, thank you to everyone who mm-hmm. donates to the show. Uh, that is probably the largest chunk of help that Adam and I get in order yes. to, to keep the show going and to keep it at the quality that, that we want to present. And so we're going to let our listeners take us out. Until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 